So we are in week three of our series of sermons called Church Matters, where we are joining alongside with basically our culture, our society, saying, does church matter? Like, what is it that we do here? Is it significant? Does it make a difference? Why come to church versus not come to church? Why is there a church, right? So <clears throat> it's not an easy, easy question to wrestle with sometimes. Uh, coming out of the COVID season where a lot of things went online, is there still value in coming and sitting together when you can, I mean, some of you guys are at home on, in, in your pajamas drinking coffee um, and hi. Um, but a lot of you have decided to, to come back and gather in person. And this series is kind of exploring the different reasons why that might be. But more importantly than us understanding why church matters um, is us taking that understanding and turning it into a message of hope for others or turning it into a mission that we walk in. And so um, this week's sermon is uh, Encounter God in Discipleship. So if you remember the first week I talked about the four E's that were on our website um, <laughs> uh, that we're kind of basing this off of. It was uh, does anybody remember the first one? Embrace community. Good, 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 good. I'm glad, glad everybody remembered that one. Um, but now we're on to encountering God, and we're going to talk about encountering God through discipleship. And as we get into that, and I'm going to tell a story, and I, I think I've shared parts of this story um, with you all so far, but um, sometimes it blurs together when I did. But when I was in college, I had the opportunity to go to Israel uh, with a group from Olivet, and we were at one of these historic sites. And for me as a 20-year-old college student, being in Israel was, was overwhelming. Um, it was culture shock. It was um, things of the Bible coming alive in a way I'd never experienced before, my first time in a, in a foreign country. There was just a lot going on, and I was just kind of overwhelmed by, by the whole experience. And uh, about halfway through the trip, we went to this historical place, and you could see the remnants of ancient buildings. Like there's coliseums that were kind of toppled over, not coliseums, columns um, that were toppled over. And you could see some of the, the lasting effects of, of old buildings. And in the middle of that were kids probably five, six, seven years old playing soccer, right in this historical site. Um, which again, the culture shock, right? Like for them, that was just, that was home, right? That's just where they played. That was the open field that they had access to. You know, for us, I think of like historical sites as like museums, it's roped off, there's a, a rope you can't cross or like you can look at it from far off or you pay the, the admission price to get in and see the historical thing. But for them, they just played soccer right in the middle of it. And uh, we were getting ready to leave, my group was getting ready to leave, and so we're out in the parking lot getting on the, the charter bus thing, and a limo pulled up. And it was you know, a ways off, but it was significant enough that, you know, different enough that we saw this limo and it stood out and our tour guide said, hey, everybody, look over there. Do you guys know what's going on? And a, a man and a woman got out of the limo, a man wearing tux and a woman wearing a white dress. And like, of course, we know that this is a wedding or they just got married, right? Like, we're not, we're in a foreign country, but we're not slow, right? Like, it's, it's we, we know that what a wedding looks like. And he said, no, watch the man and the woman. And so, the wedding party kind of hung out by the limo, the group of, of folks, family members, and the, the husband and the wife, the groom and the bride, kind of walked off on their own, 
uh, off into a grassy area, and our tour guide said, do you know what they're doing? And we're talking? I don't know. He said, they're introducing themselves to each other. It was the first day that they had ever met. It was an arranged marriage, which was still a, a common practice in parts of that culture. And so that was, again, the overwhelming the culture shock. I, you know, you hear about these types of things, but um, the idea of meeting somebody for the first time on your wedding day seemed odd would be an understatement, I think, um, and kind of go against our culture of, you know, our choices and, and the way we approach marriage and all those types of things. But would you marry somebody you never met? Like, think about that for a minute. Would you just show up and be like, well, Dad says it's, this is the right person. Um, would you marry somebody you'd never met? Well, how about, like, if you knew a bunch of information about them? Like, if you got a resume, would that, would that help? <laughs> right? Like, you got a list, maybe their med- medical records, right? Maybe what they were like as a child. I mean, a little bit more information, is that helpful? Does it make it easier? Like, yeah, we've never met before, but I know you're left-handed. Like, does that help? So, <clears throat> I bring this up because for some reason, uh, which we'll get into, but for some reason, we as Christians sometimes start talking about Jesus <laughs> by referencing his resume, by trying to communicate information about him. Our faith becomes a memorization of, of doctrines or principles. Um, we know things about, there's, the, there's a debate, and I, this kind of blew my mind when I first encountered this, but there's a debate about how tall Jesus was. There's this ideal that the perfect man is six foot, and so Jesus was the perfect man, so obviously he was six foot tall. Is that helpful? Right? Is anybody like, oh, I'm going to have faith in that guy. He was six foot tall. Right? Like, we can look at his resume, but does that help us understand anything about who he is or who God is? Right? And Jesus, this is what's so great about the incarnation, Jesus, the word becoming flesh, right, is that Jesus invites us to encounter God through discipleship. And again, this discipleship uh, word kind of correlates, corresponds to teaching information. Like in our culture, if you wanted to, if you went to a Christian bookstore and said, well, I'm interested in information about discipleship, it'll be about like how to study the Bible. It'll be about how to do a small group thing or how to, it becomes, how do you transmit information to other people? But Jesus, when he he talks about discipleship, it's, it's an invitation beyond to learn some things. It's more than a resume. He's inviting people to follow him, not just give them information, but to follow him so he can teach them how to live in the kingdom of God. When Jesus talks about disciples, he's talking about people that are learning to have their life found in God, to have the, the, their practices, the way of living, be shaped by the way of Jesus. And we're going to dig into this a little bit more today. Um, We're going to look at Matthew chapter 4, just a few verses there. Matthew 4, verses 18 through 22. Uh, It should be a familiar text. Um, Words will be on the screen, I believe. Um, You can uh, use your Bible or Bible app if you have that as well. Just a few verses out of Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 18. 
says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake and they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Um, pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word, uh, not only your word on a page um, that can tell us a story, but your word that became flesh and dwells amongst us. We're grateful for your, your law and your teaching, not as rules, but as a formative thing that teaches us how to live in your kingdom. May your spirit help us grab a hold of these truths. May we have an encounter with you, not only today in service, but in our lives as we go out throughout our week and the everyday ordinary things, may we encounter you. May we hear the invitation to follow Jesus as more than an agreement to a certain set of beliefs, but a way of living in faithfulness and obedience to your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So like I said, this is a fairly familiar scripture text, right? Jesus calling these fishermen to be his first followers, his first disciples, right? So he, he calls fishermen, and, and this is an important detail, right? Um, these fishermen would have learned their trade. They would have learned how to be fishermen, um, not by going necessarily to a school or reading a manual. Um, they obviously didn't have YouTube to teach them how to do it. Um, pull up a quick video, how to fish, no. But they learned this trade from somebody who was already an expert at it. They, they learned how to fish by being an apprentice of a master. They learned how to do it, and, and, and for a lot of them, it was probably their dad. Their dad was a fisherman, and it's their family business and that type of thing. But they, they, they would have spent years learning how to be a fisherman like their dad was, like their fathers were. They would have been apprentices of these more skilled fishermen. And so they weren't just told information about fishing. It wasn't like they said, like they read a manual somewhere, but they spent probably years working with nets and boats and fish at the guidance, at the instruction of an experienced fisherman teaching them how to do this. And so Jesus engaged these fishermen in the middle of their activities. He showed up while they were busy doing their thing. And, and it's important to note that they didn't come looking for him. They didn't have a question they were hoping for him to answer, but he comes to where they are in the midst of their vocation, and he invites them to come follow him, to be his disciples. What does he tell them that, that's going to happen if they follow him? What, what are they going to do? What is he going to do if they choose to say yes to this invitation? Does Jesus tell them that if they follow him, he will give them information about God? Does he tell them that if they follow him, he will teach them proper doctrines and theology? Does he tell them that if they follow him, uh, 
teach them the seven principles or, or ten rules on how to achieve success. He says that if they follow him, he will teach them to fish for men. So not only is he calling them to be his followers, but he is going to train them, equip them, empower them for a very specific mission. They're going to be his students. He's going to teach them. He's going to instruct them on how to do this thing that he's calling them to do. Jesus is going to be their teacher, their master. He's going to gather this group and give them the tools to do this task. In the same way that these fishermen spent years learning how to be a fisherman, following the teachings of this more skilled master, more skilled teacher, Jesus is now inviting them to follow him and to learn a new vocation, a new calling, a new way of living. So he isn't just going to give them information, although that is part of his teaching. He is also going to teach them how to pray, how to care for those in need, how to live the way that Jesus lives. A disciple doesn't just want to know what the master knows, but a disciple wants to do what the master does, right? That's the whole idea of an apprentice, learning the skills. If these fishermen follow Jesus, they won't just hear about God. They will be taught how to live in the kingdom, how to be faithful to what God is calling them to be. Their being made disciples was not just about communicating information, um, but was also about practices, relationships. And I keep mentioning, mentioning transfer of information. I keep talking about that it's more than just that. And the reason for that is because for the last 500 years of Christian history, um, that's kind of been our, our building block. That's kind of been the, the go-to for us. Um, the tendency has been to focus on information about God rather than encountering God through the practices and relationships that Jesus gives us. Now, I, I say 500 years, that's a rough time frame. It takes us back to the time of the Reformation. It puts us in the middle of kind of the Enlightenment, the birth of the Enlightenment period. These are two big factors that changed the world. The Reformation changed religion for sure. Um, you know, Martin Luther, with his ideas of what the focus point should be, Scripture, right? We, we need to know Scripture. We need to know the truths of Scripture. Right? That coupled with the Enlightenment period where we're talking about reason and, and the birth of scientific method and the birth of understanding uh, of teaching. Right? So 500 years is kind of this rough time frame where the Enlightenment and Reformation has changed the way that the church engages the world. Honestly, the whole world has, has changed because of these two things, and as, uh, just by default, we become skeptical of experiences. Right? How many times in Christian circles have you heard that you can't trust your own experience? That's what the scriptures are for, right? Like the, the, the scriptures are true, and you have to define your experience through scriptures. We put our trust in ideas, in doctrines, in absolute truth, in facts. Part of the Enlightenment was that truth is taught, not experienced. And so we find ourselves as Christians today wanting to know about Jesus, which is great. <laughs> give us the information. Give us the resume. Give us the, the, the facts, the details, the doctrines, what is true, what is not. But at the same time, we're 
a little bit more hesitant to see ourselves as apprentices of Jesus, to encounter God, to experience, uh, experience God through life in Christ. So for, for some of us, uh, Jesus becomes something that we study and know about rather than our teacher that teaches us how to live. And once you're aware of this dynamic, you're going to start to see it everywhere, and some of you probably already are aware of this, but we focus on learning things about Jesus. But Jesus wanted to teach us how to live in the kingdom. And so for those of us who don't see Jesus as a teacher, our faith becomes something that's lived out in our head. It's lived out in our ideas. It's lived out in our agreement to certain things. Right? Do we affirm this or not? What, how does the Trinity work? Good luck with that one. Right? Like, but it's, it's an idea of, it's wrestling with these ideas. It's about what we know, what we agree with, or what we disagree with, and how we feel about that. That's kind of what Christian life becomes. But those who see Jesus as their teacher understand that to follow Jesus means more than agreeing with ideas about him. It's listening to the things he taught. It's learning how to live the way that he lived. It's learning how to love and forgive the way that Jesus loved and forgave. It's learning to be generous and caring the way that Jesus not only did, but told his disciples they were supposed to. It's learning how to enter into broken situations where it seems like sin and death has won and to bring God's life into those places. And so it seems to me that Jesus expects his followers to do the types of things that he did. And that may seem foreign to us. It may seem a little weird because we got Jesus up. I mean, he's the son of God, right? Like he's doing things that nobody else can do, and that's, that's true. But there's these moments in Scripture where, where you can see that Jesus expects his followers to do certain things, to do the things that he did. There's a moment where one of the few times you see Jesus frustrated or angry, I mean, he got frustrated with his disciples often because they just weren't getting it. But one of the times that he's most frustrated is when he finds out that they tried to cast out a demon and they couldn't do it. And so he had to do it. And he gets frustrated with them. He's disappointed. He's a little bit angry with them. Like, am I going to have to do this forever for you guys? Or can't you take care of even this? Right? In other places, he t tells his disciples... And this is something that stuck with me since I was a, a kid. He tells his disciples that they're going to do greater things than he did. Really? <laughs> Jesus? The people that follow him are going to do greater things than he did? But it doesn't appear that Jesus thought that what he was doing, the way that he lived, the things that he did, were only for him. It wasn't the Jesus way and then everybody else just kind of benefits from that. But it was an invitation for him to teach us how to live the way that he lived. In fact, it becomes clear as we study the Bible that Jesus lives the life that we're all supposed to live, that we're invited to live. The Apostle Paul says to be an imitator of Christ. That's a big task. That Jesus was the firstborn of God's family who all live holy lives, and we are his brothers and sisters. He's the firstborn, but we are all brothers and sisters. 
And then the Great Commission, where Jesus tells his followers to go and make disciples of all nations. That Great Commission is often viewed as the final instruction that he gave his followers. Right? Go make disciples of all nations. He was the teacher, and those who followed him were disciples. But in this, this conclusion of the Gospel of Matthew, he tells them, go make disciples. You're the teachers now. Go get apprentices and teach them how to live in the kingdom. Being a disciple, a follower of Jesus, isn't something that happens instantly. Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite pastors and authors, um, kind of defines discipleship as a long obedience in the same direction. I really like that. It's a long obedience in the same direction. It's a, it's a commitment of saying yes to Jesus time and time again, staying on the same path. To be a disciple, we must know Jesus well. We must know his teachings. We must know his heart. We must know his life. You can't follow Jesus and not know Jesus. And so I don't know if you, if you picked up on this, but for the past six months, basically starting last December, at the beginning of Advent, the, the weeks before Christmas, all the way to the day of Pentecost where we kicked off our series on Acts, Every Sunday for that six-month period, we looked at a story from the life of Jesus. We want to know Jesus. We want to hear and see what he has to say and what he's doing. We want to follow him. I hope you don't have any desire to be the type of Christian that knows all kinds of things about God or about Jesus, but then not have your life shaped by God or by Jesus, by the things he taught us to do. The truth is we can know facts, we can know information, we can know scriptural doctrines, theologies, we can argue about them, we can become experts in these things. We can know those facts and information uh, about the incarnation, about atonement theories, about justification, about sanctification, salvation, and more. We can know these doctrines and theories and still not know how to live lives that follow the way of Jesus. Being a disciple of Jesus is more than studying the Bible. It's about letting God show you how to live, how to treat others, how to respond to hurts and pains, what to do with your resources that God has given you. Uh, have you guys put up the first slide, if you would. So being a disciple of Jesus means that you allow Jesus to be your teacher so that you can do the things that Jesus calls us to do. This is, like I said, important. Jump to the next thing. You just hang on to that for a second. There's a lot of ways to define discipleship. There's a, a lot of ways to talk about what it means when, when you hear the word discipleship. What does, that, what does that mean to be a disciple? But a lot of times, and, and I'm including myself in this, church leaders just assume that church activities produce disciples. <laughs> if we do church things, if we do things at the church or with the church or whatever, it's, that's discipleship. We just assume what we're doing is discipleship. But at the same time, many of the congregation, people that are around the church or in the church are wondering, am I doing enough? Am I doing the right things? Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? And so there's a disconnect at times because when we say discipleship, we don't know what we're talking about 
Like we're not on the same page. We're not talking the same language. And so as pastor of Battle Creek First, I just want to define for you today what I mean when I say be a disciple. And that's where this one plus one plus one comes along. And um, we introduced this a while back in one of the letters that I sent home, I think during the driving ministry. Um, But this simple math is going to be how we talk about discipleship in First Church, at least for the near future. And what the one plus one plus one means is one of those ones is one worship experience per week, whether you're online or not. To be a disciple means that you gather and worship with others, right? And that shouldn't be shocking or a surprise to anybody that um, we think disciples should gather in community and worship. Um, so that's one of the ones. The next one of the ones is discipleship, connecting uh, and growing experience per week. So like Sunday school, small group, some sort of opportunity where you are growing in your knowledge but also participating in a, a community of believers as we grow together, praying for one another, all those types of things. And then the third one is a service experience. And this one might be a little bit trickier for some of us. To serve other people, to be part of a team, to to be part of a ministry, to be part of some sort of group that is serving others. And so, like I said, we can define discipleship in a lot of different ways, but for us right now as we kind of think about being a church that is going to tell others, to tell our community what church is about, this will be our definition of discipleship. A disciple is somebody who worships. A disciple is somebody who studies and grows in a community. And a disciple is somebody who serves. I hope this doesn't seem too foreign of a concept. (laughs) I'm just trying to simplify. This will be the formula for life in the church as we return and as we move forward. I'm going to invite you to commit to attend and participate in worship. Commit to participate in experiences where you can grow in your knowledge and grow in your relationship. And then commit to serve God and serve others in some way or another. And for some, this will be a super easy commitment to make. Some of you are doing more than this already. Uh, But for some, this might be a stretch or a challenge. Uh, For somebody new that walks in the door having never been a part of a church, this may seem like a major commitment. Um, But the reality is that this type of formula, this, this definition of discipleship, Uh, should lead us to pray more. It should lead us to have compassion and concern and care for other people more. It should grow our dependence on God, on the Holy Spirit. Um, It should force us to look at the gifts that God has given us. When I was in in college, um, I had taken uh, two years of basically classes towards ministry preparation, and then I Life outside of school was crazy, and so I took a semester off to go get a job, make a little bit of money, and figure out what my next step was. I still felt the call to ministry, but I needed to kind of hit reset on some things. And so I took a semester off, and I got a job working in a warehouse. When I went back to school, one of my professors asked me to stay after class. And I was like, oh, no, now what did I do? And I went up to to Dr. Dalton, and he said, I just wanted to let you know I noticed that you're more focused. You have more pointed questions in class. You seem to be more engaged. And I told him, I said, it's because I've met some people at this job I have 
that need Jesus, and I don't have all the answers. I had a friend that I met while working at this warehouse who grew up in the church. Her dad was a, a, a leader of the church, not the pastor, but one of the other people that got to sit on the, pulp, on the platform every week in the fancy chairs. And the people in the church thought he was the greatest, but after church he would go home and abuse my friend and her sister. And so for her, faith was this really convoluted, twisted thing, and she was trying to figure out what this whole God thing was about. So I went to class with questions about how to help her. I had friends that I worked with on the shipping docks in this warehouse that grew up as a Christian but saw it as a team that they had joined. Like, I'm a Christian, I'm going to go to heaven when I die, but it didn't shape the way that he lived. It didn't shape the way that he treated other people. And I was like, how do I help somebody who thinks they've already crossed the finish line? And so I did. I went back to class with more questions, questioning how God is going to use me, what the Spirit is up to, right? I prayed for them more than ever before. Uh, I, my heart, my sense of compassion grew. My sense of empathy grew. Like My sense of uh, understanding that life was more complex grew as I engaged with people outside the church. As I served others, as I did those things, it drove me more into these practices of faith. And so that's what I expect to happen. Serving others is one of the most formative things you can do. And just in case you're thinking that your best days are behind you, maybe you can't serve by working in the child care areas anymore, can't teach Sunday school. Um, I'd invite you to serve by praying regularly for the church. Pray for the leadership, the congregation, and the ministries. That's a huge service. On the board out in the foyer, there's an area for volunteer-type positions, and there's one out there called Prayer Team, and we'll talk about that more next week, actually, as part of the, the, the sermon next week as we look at what worship is. Um, but the, what we're trying to do is, is develop ways in which you can serve others without it being, well, I'm not, in, I, I can't be in charge of this. I can't be at the church 20 hours a week. I can't, like, and, and so the, I know that in order to have the one plus one plus one equals disciple formula, in order to have that opportunity for everyone, we might have to do things a little bit differently than we've been done before. It might feel kind of awkward. It might be kind of weird. And I'm okay with that. I embrace the awkward. But for some of you, you might be like, what, what is this guy up to? If you struggle to find your ones or you're trying to figure out what in the world is this pastor up to, let me know. My favorite thing, I remember interviewing with the church board and saying my favorite thing is helping other people find the way to say yes to what God is calling them to do. That's my, my favorite thing about being a pastor is seeing other people take their steps in faith. So check the serve board in the foyer, ask questions, get connected, reconnected. There's going to be things as we continue to move uh, forward, um, there might be some opportunities that might click with you. And again, this won't happen overnight. Transition change is, is messy. It's hard sometimes. It doesn't happen by flipping a switch. And so, you know, don't feel like you're going to get a report card. You know, <laughs> you're not doing this one. No, it's, this is a guide. And it's a guide, honestly, for us, as, uh, for me as a pastor, for the church board, for ministry leaders as we approach our things and say, how do we help other people get connected in discipleship? Type opportunities? How do we help people serve others? 
So for an example, uh, in case you're, you're not tracking with me at all, uh, a few months back, I started a young adult small group that meets uh, in the parsonage on Sunday nights, and it's a lot of people for a small space. Um, we have a good time. Um, but we've recently adopted a, a format, a routine, in which for two Sundays in a row, we're going to do a discussion based off of the sermon. And I, I just, when I write my sermon, I write discussion questions that go along with it, and then we just kind of chat about those. Um, so two Sundays in a row, we do uh, some sort of sermon-based biblical study. The next Sunday, we'll do a service opportunity. So we're, we've compiled a list of things on how we can serve others, serve the community, do projects for the church, for other churches, for whatever. Like we've think about how this group, this small group of people can get involved in serving others. We've got a huge list. And then, so it's two studies, boom, boom, in a row, one service, and then one social gathering, one fellowship. And then we repeat it. And in that cycle, if you're in that group for any length of time, you're going to get a little bit of study. We're going to get some depth information. We're going to serve other people together. It's not all on one person's shoulder to determine what we're doing or to make it work. And then we're going to grow together in fellowship and in fun. And so I created this, this young adult small group, number one, because it seemed like a need, but number two, as kind of a, a model for what groups could look like in this church. Uh, if uh, we want to start new groups or if others want to get involved with this, I wanted this to be kind of the blueprint. So imagine just for a moment if that we had four or five of these types of groups going. Right? People engaged in study, people engaged in service, in social gatherings. We could partner together for larger projects, fellowshipping together on particular occasions, developing relationships with each other while being faithful to the things Jesus taught us to do. So just a little bit of a commercial. If this sounds like something that's appealing to you, there's the thing on the serve board out there to how to become a group host. Um, if that's interesting you or piqued any curiosity, just talk to me after service at some point. I'd love to chat with you. Um, and this isn't trying to put down or compete against Sunday school. I know that this church has a long history of Sunday school ministries, and we're not trying to compete with that. Um, and honestly, a lot of these elements that we're talking about are part of the Sunday school ministry, and um, they're there just in different ways. And maybe this whole conversation will give Sunday school classes the opportunity, maybe a little bit of permission to think creativity, creatively um, and do things outside of their classroom. Anyways, um, these groups are intended to engage those who aren't currently connected. It's to supplement what we're doing here. And again, discipleship is not just information, nor is it activity, right? So it's not just a transfer of information, but nor is it just activity for the sake of activity. It's not uh, filling up the calendar with activities that will keep us so busy, but that actually prevent us from doing things that we're supposed to be doing, right? Um, one plus one plus one means that there might be things going on in the life of the church that you're not a part of just because we might have a lot of smaller things going instead of a lot of big activities. And I know that there's, for, for some generations and some churches, the mentality was if the doors are open, you need to be here. Um, but I want you to know that in this one plus one plus one model, um, if there's something going on and it's not one of your ones, there's no guilt. 
There's no shame, right? There's no questioning your faith commitment, right? And I'm saying that to reassure you, but also as a congregation to make sure that we're not looking at people going, well, why isn't so-and-so here? They should be at this thing. If you're committed to your one plus one plus one, you find your three ones, there's no guilt, shame, condemnation for um, if the doors were open and you weren't here. This is going to be our formula for discipleship, encountering God. How do we experience what God is doing? And I'm, I'm really excited. This is kind of part one. Next week, the, the sermon on worship will really tie a lot of this together for us. Um, but I want you to be praying and thinking about your discipleship formula. How can you check these ones off? Um, Recently, our Young Adults Connect group had its first official social uh, fellowship week, right? <laughs> we had our first official fun week, our first official fellowship social week, right? Um, now, we have a video we're going to show you, and if, you're, if you watch this video with a question going, well, how much information about God was transferred here? How much knowledge about Jesus happened? Like, how much do we talk about? Um, sadly, there was an event toward, kind of towards the end of our time together that there was probably prayers involved, but we didn't get that on video. Um, but if you look at that and evaluate it from how much study happened, how much uh, information was, was transferred, you'll probably say this event was a waste of time. But if you come from the perspective, the question of asking if the goal that you're we evaluating it based on is participation in the life of a community of believers... If you evaluate it based off of were relationships strengthened, was the, was the life of the church visible outside the walls of the church? I think as you watch this video, you'll realize that it was.